the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 26 from verse 17. The 17th verse of the 26th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. I'm reading from the New English Bible. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to ask Jesus, where would you like us to prepare for your Passover supper? He answered, go to a certain man in the city and tell him, the master says, my appointed time is near. I am to keep Passover with my disciples at your house. The disciples did as Jesus directed them and prepared for Passover. In the evening, he sat down with the twelve disciples, and during supper he said, I tell you this, one of you will betray me. In great distress, they exclaimed one after the other, Can you mean me, Lord? He answered, One who has dipped his hand into this bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man is going the way appointed for him in the Scriptures, but alas for that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had never been born. Then Judas spoke, the one who was to betray him. Rabbi, he said, can you mean me? Jesus replied, the words are yours. During supper, Jesus took bread, and having said the blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples with the words, Take this and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and having offered thanks to God, he gave it to them with the words, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, never again shall I drink from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of my Father. After singing the Passover hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, Tonight you will all fall from your face on my account, for it stands written, I will strike the shepherd down and the sheep of his flock will be scattered. But after I am raised again, I will go on before you into Galilee. Peter replied, Everyone else may fall away on your account, but I never will. Jesus said to him, I tell you, tonight, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Peter said, even if I must die with you, I will never disown you. And all the disciples (coughs) said the same. Jesus then came with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, anguish and dismay came over him and he said to them my heart is ready to break with grief stop here 
and stay awake with me. He went on a little, fell on his face in prayer and said, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass me by, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. He came to the disciples and found them asleep, and he said to Peter, What? Could none of you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may be spared the test. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to pass me by without my drinking it, thy will be done. He came again and found them asleep, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again, and he prayed the third time, using the same words as before. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Still sleeping? Still taking your ease? The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed to sinful men. Up. Let us go forward. The traitor is upon us. First to subdivisions of that first division of this last section of Matthew. The threshold of the king's passion. Matthew focuses our attention upon three things at the threshold of the king's passion. The first is, as we have put, the sovereign authority of God's king. The Lord Jesus was not at the mercy of circumstances engineered by Satan uh, or at the mercy of evil men, their, their, their intrigues and their malice and everything else. We, we saw that he is himself ruling and overruling. And indeed we shall see this very evening that he was the one who was precipitating the things not them, the sovereign authority of God's king. The cross was no mistake, no accident. It was a divine appointment. And the second thing we saw, the second thing Matthew focuses our attention upon at the threshold of the king's passion is this, these two stories. One exquisitely beautiful, the other repellingly evil. One of a woman disciple called Mary who took the most precious thing valued by the way, I didn't tell you this last week, its value would, would be roughly today at about 550 pounds. She took that flask of utterly precious oil, her whole life savings, and she anointed the king. Now, there was, I think, in Scripture, no anointing of a king more wonderful, more sincere, and more meaningful than Mary's anointing of a king. Now, sisters, take courage. <laughs> Nowhere in the whole word of God have you a record of a woman anointing anyone for a task. But Mary anointed the Saviour the only a human being in one sense we could say whoever did anoint him 
Uh, of course, we can. We would say that outwardly it wasn't a royal anointing. But from heaven's point of view, I have no doubt at all that she fulfilled an anointing of the king for his supreme life work and task. We have also another story that I have called Repelling the Evil. It is the story of Judas who betrayed his master for 30 pieces of silver, about today 150 pounds, the value placed by the law of God on a common slave. Now this evening we come to the third matter upon which Matthew focuses our attention at the threshold of the king's passion. And it is the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 26 and uh, we will look at verse 17 uh, to 30 uh, this evening. Two tremendous things take place during this last meal together. Judas goes out to arrange Christ's arrest and uh, betrayal. And secondly, Christ fulfills in himself the meaning of the Passover and gives to us a new feast of remembrance. Now, one or two questions. Was the meal that the Lord ate with his disciples, his twelve disciples, was it the Passover meal? Uh, everyone agrees, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, all agree, I'm not going to go into the facts, details this evening, but all agree that the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ took place on a Friday. And all of them agree that the Last Supper took place on late on Thursday evening. Everyone agrees on that. The problem is whether the actual Passover day, as opposed to the Passover feast, which was a festival which lasted eight days, the actual Passover day, the problem is whether the actual Passover day fell on Friday that year or Thursday that year. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke would suggest that the last supper was the Passover meal. They seem to be, quite honestly, beyond uh, what they say is beyond all reasonable doubt. Uh, they make it quite clear that it was the Passover meal that the Lord was uh, keeping. Uh, there seems to be no question. John, on the other hand, uh, suggests at least at a first reading that it was not the Passover day uh, on which the Last Supper uh, was eaten, but the day before Passover day, preparation, as it was called, preparation. And he would suggest that the Lord Jesus was crucified at the time of the sacrificing of the Lamb. 
Now, that's a, a problem. It's a big problem. And I have decided that we're going to leave a full discussion of it till we come to John. That's perhaps a year or two away. Um, but um, I have felt that um, for one or two reasons, I think that it's necessary for us first to deal with Matthew, Mark and Luke before really we can come to the real crux of the problem. There is an explanation for it, but we would have to spend quite a bit of this evening simply going into all the details um, to try and tie up what is, in fact, one of the major problems of the Gospels, this matter of the actual date of the crucifixion is one of the major. So you can understand it's no small problem. Uh, there is an explanation for it, but as I say, it would take a long time to, uh, to give all the uh, reasons uh, for it. So we're going to leave that. What I want to underline is the fact that everyone agrees that the Lord Jesus was crucified on the Friday. Everyone agrees that the Last Supper was on the Thursday. What we can also say is that the meal they had together was either the Passover meal exactly and precisely kept and observed as all the rest of God's covenant people were keeping it. Or it was it on the day previous taking the form of the Passover meal but with the notable exception of the lamb. In other words, it was still the Passover meal kept one day earlier, this is one of the suggestions made, but there was the notable exception of the lamb roasted. Now, uh, if you look at verses uh, 17 to 18, chapter 26, verse 17 to 18, we read three things. First, verse 17, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? That seems to be without question. Verse 18, my time is at hand, I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Verse 19, the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Those three um, phrases uh, in this passage seem to put it beyond all reasonable a doubt that it was the Passover meal um, that was being kept. Those who feel that it was a day earlier still say that it, was, it took the form of the Passover. My point is this, that the background of this Last Supper, whichever way you look at it, was the Passover. And this is in fact all important. Now the feast of the Passover, the Passover festival, was in fact called by the Jews the feast of unleavened bread. Still is. Um, it is a, 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 a festival which lasts in all eight days. Now it begins as it does to this very day with the purging on the preparation, the day of preparation as it's called, the purging of all leaven from the house. Every Orthodox Jew goes with a candle right round the whole house up into the loft 
into the attic, uh, down into the cellar, into every single room, nook and cranny, and he says a few words now, which means that should there be a little bit of leaven left there, it's cancelled. <laughs> but in the good old days, everything was raked out, the place was spring cleaned, and leaven was simply destroyed. Then that afternoon, your lamb was sacrificed, was passed by the priests in the temple court, um, and was slain. Then you brought it back to your home, and it was prepared and made ready for the actual feast which was kept that evening. Now, the Jewish reckoning of days began with sunset, right round to sunset. So in other fact, now, by Jewish reckoning, we are all in Friday. <laughs> Thursday's finished. Friday has started when the sun set. Um, now, that may confuse you, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that that evening, after sunset, which happened to be the beginning of the next day in Jewish reckoning, the Passover meal was kept. Now, again... It, um, I'm not going to discuss all, I think we'll do that when we take one of the other go Gospels, all the, the, the ritual. What I'd love to do one, uh, one year uh, is to lay out a table and get one or two to help us and we would lay it out exactly as a Passover table um, and show you just exactly what's in it. It would be very interesting to you, I'm quite sure, and also would give you to understand what lies behind the Lord's table, for every bit of it was filled with significance. There was nothing on that table that was not symbolic. It was a symbolic meal. It wasn't a great sort of Christmas uh, uh, fair, you know, a great Christmas sort of meal. Uh, it was everything on the table had symbolic meaning. Nothing was permitted on the table um, that had not, in fact, some kind of symbolic meaning. There was unleavened bread, which spoke of, symbolized the bread of affliction, the suffering in Egypt. Um, there was the um, source of herbs, which again um, uh, symbolized the suffering through which the people of God had gone. Um, there was the lamb uh, whose blood had freed them from the angel of death. There was the four cups of wine, uh, the third of which was called the cup of blessing, uh, which was drunk at different points through the meal, and which in fact was the kind of uh, sign of each phase in the meal. During the course of the meal, uh, the elder father, whoever it was, the eldest male member of the family, uh, to this very day, will ask that old, age-old traditional question, why do we keep this meal? And the son, the eldest son, will reply, is taught from childhood to do so because the Lord delivered us from Egypt. And then he goes on into a long account, backwards and forwards, it goes question and answer whilst everyone sits round. During that time, as, the, as it goes through, you eat various things, all of which have meaning as the story unfolds. Now, this was the actual meal that we call the Last Supper of our Lord Jesus. Evidently, he sat at the head of the table, and as far as we know, he asked the question, and probably Peter answered. Um, certainly one of them would have answered. It was the age-old traditional ritual 
of the Passover. Now, from time immemorial, the covenant people had kept the feast regularly in their early years, haphazardly in the later years of the kings, very haphazardly indeed, and since and after the return from the exile, they kept it faithfully, if legally. They kept it absolutely faithfully up till the time of our Lord's coming and to this very night that we are considering. Now think, the long-promised, long-awaited King and Messiah was going to keep it for the last time. It was the fulfillment of one whole old economy. And it was the beginning of the new. I often wonder, really, whether the disciples themselves realise, as they sat round that table, after all, they'd done it rather like we keep Christmas. They had uh, done it year in, year out from childhood. They just sat round. It was something that was part and parcel of life. It, it, it marked off the year because Passover was, in some senses, the mark of a new year. And, and, and for them, it, uh, it had all that meaning. And yet it was sort of familiar, usual. You know, the day of grace was dawning on an unsuspecting world and on unsuspecting disciples. They had absolutely no idea that that upper room was the scene of one whole economy which had lasted for thousands of years, passing away, and one, the new and eternal, coming in. They had no idea. I sometimes wonder, we, we tend to be superior with the children of God under the old covenant. We tend to think that we, of course, if we'd been there, we would have shown them and so on. But you know, we're all just the same. Tremendous things can happen. We're quite unsuspecting. Right in front of our very eyes. Such things can happen. It was an ordinary room, no doubt. A nice room. Pleasant room. An upper room. It was the guest room. Someone's guest room. where had the, the nicest carpets. And uh, uh, there it was. They kept this age-old traditional meal. All that that meal embodied, all that it typified, all that it foreshadowed was being fulfilled and they didn't know it. The, uh, the, uh, the perfect lamb, the shed blood, the eaten lamb, the exodus out of slavery, the presence of God in the midst, the giving of an inheritance, all of that was foreshadowed in that simple ritual of the Passover meal. And it was being fulfilled. The perfect lamb, he was there himself without sin, without spot, without blemish. That lamb had to be passed by the minutest examination of Levites and priests before it was accounted spotless.
When that happened, it was passed through to the, to the priest who would slay it. There was the perfect lamb, the one who knew no sin, who'd been proved on e at every point. You know who had passed him? God himself on the Mount of Transfiguration. When God said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. That was the point at which the Passover lamb was declared without spot and without blemish, absolutely perfect. From that point, the Lord Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem. He was going forward to fulfill the work for which he had come into the world. The shed blood. The Lord Jesus at this very meal a little later on speaks of his own blood, the blood of the new covenant. My blood of the new covenant, he calls it. The shed blood of the Lamb. That blood of lambs which had delivered them from, from the angel of death was only something, there was no, no blood of a lamb that could deliver them. It was only because it spoke of the blood of the one who sat at that table. So soon to be shed for us all and for them. The eaten lamb, there on the table was the roast lamb, bloodless. Roast. Blood had been shed. Now the lamb was roast, and the, the age-old tradition was you were to eat according to the word of God everything. Nothing was to be left. At the end, the bones were to be burnt. Nothing was to be left. And it was a picture of the one who was to be received fully and completely. He himself, he that eats my flesh and drinks my blood, shall have eternal life in himself. It was the picture of an exodus from slavery. And the Lord Jesus himself had said at one point, if the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. And in another place, Luke tells us that on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah appeared, they spoke of his exodus. His exodus. The thing he was going to accomplish for, all, for us all when he ascended on high and led captivity captive, distributed gifts among men. All this was being fulfilled in that simple meal, that last meal together, an inheritance given, and we have an inheritance, incorruptible, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for us, but kept by the power of God unto a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Now all this was um, being fulfilled um, before their eyes. Christ took this age old traditional Passover meal and fulfilling it in himself he invested it with a new meaning and a new glory. From that table he takes two things. He takes the unleavened bread which was the bread of affliction. He gives it a new meaning. He said take, eat, this is my body the bread of affliction. Oh, my dear friend, what does it mean? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's what it means. It means that his body, that perfect sinless body, had known sorrow and grief that none of us will ever know. 
the bread of affliction. When he took that bread of affliction and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Do we understand it when we take that loaf on a Sunday morning and break it? All the joy that there is in it, all the symbolism that there is in it, that we have been redeemed, that we have been made part of Christ, that we are one body. Do we understand that it was the bread of affliction? This is my body, which is broken for you, the bread of affliction. He took something else. He took, if we listen to Luke's account, he took the third cup, which was the cup of blessing. And he took the cup of blessing which we bless. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That cup of blessing which spoke of the blessing of being delivered from Egypt, brought out of Egypt, delivered from the world, given an inheritance in God. The cup of blessing for people who didn't deserve blessing. And he takes that cup and he says, it is the new covenant in my blood, based on the grace of God for every single one of us. Well, now, you see, he takes those two things, the bread and the wine, and he makes them the matchless symbols of the new covenant. For us, for this age, the bread and the wine are the, the supreme and only symbols he has left us that speak of the covenant that he has made with us, which is an eternal covenant, the inheritance which he has given us, which is an eternal inheritance, of the salvation which is ours, which is a so great salvation. All this is comprehended by the bread and uh, the wine. Now we have it if we look in the verses 26 to 28. I want to see it. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin." Now, this feast which our Lord Jesus Christ has given to you and to me is to be a perpetual reminder of a divine mystery. I say that again, a perpetual reminder of a divine mystery, of something so gigantic in its consequences and its effects that it is beyond human comprehension. Now that is the Lord's table. It is a simple table. It is simple bread and simple wine. But it represents not something that is small, something that is cheap, something that is easy. It represents a divine mystery which lies at the very heart of our faith which lies at the very heart of the gospel which we preach, which lies at the very heart of the new and eternal covenant which God has made with you and with me. Never forget it. The consequences and effects 
of um, what the Lord did on the cross are gigantic. That's the only word. They reach out and they cleanse the universe. They reach down into hell and they can unlock prisoners. What he did on the cross is the pivotal point of all God's ways and of all God's dealings. And it is just that, that that simple feast of remembrance is meant to be a perpetual reminder of. Every time you and I come in, those symbols should never become, um, as it were, um, uh, 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 familiar in the sense that we no longer realize with awe and with fear what they, what they convey. That bread and that wine may be simple in themselves and things which are everyday things in one sense. The wine was drunk like water in the old days. Quite normal. Mundane in one sense. Everyday thing. But oh, my dear friend, what happened on that cross was not an everyday thing. It was no mundane thing that happened on the cross. It was no cheap and easy thing that happened on the cross. It is a perpetual reminder, that table, of a mystery that can only be uh, put in terms like this the mystery of God's pierced body and shed blood. Now, my dear friend, every time you come to the Lord's table, remember that there on the table you see, as it were, the pierced body of your God and the shed blood of your God. It is just not merely human blood and human flesh. But in some mysterious way beyond the reach of our minds, of our finite minds, it is the pierced body of God himself who became flesh. And the shed blood of God himself. It is a perpetual reminder of an agony that convulsed the universe so that the sun lost, as it were, its power for three hours. It convulsed the universe, an anguish, an agony that convulsed the universe and obtained through that agony an eternal salvation, an eternal redemption, and an eternal inheritance for sinners such as you and me. Not just uh, uh, good people, decent people, righteous people, publicans, harlots, sinners such as you me. Every time we keep 
the Lord's table, this feast of remembrance, in some wonderful, and I use that not lightly, but in some wonderful and mysterious way, we show the Lord's death till he comes. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and uh, verse 26, you will see it says, every time you eat the bread and you drink the wine, you do show forth the Lord's death till he comes. Now the word show forth is an interesting word. The authorized version says show forth. Others have put declare other modern versions of book proclaim the word is evangel. It, 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 you evangelize in a sense by, by, by breaking that bread and drinking that wine you are setting forth the gospel which is the death of our Lord Jesus Christ for us all. You show forth, I like the authorized version somehow, there's something very very beautiful about that word you show forth. You show forth. You manifest. You, you just don't just declare with the lips. But, but, but in yourselves, you show forth the death of the Lord till he comes. You show it forth. My dear friend, then, shouldn't we have a fear as we come to that table? I mean, a godly fear, a loving fear, a, a loving reverence. Should there not be an awe in us? Not the kind of awe that makes, makes for slavery and bondage, but the kind of awe that means that we are in the presence of a divine mystery. Oh, my dear friends, the trouble with us all is we've lost our sense of the, of, of, of the divine mystery of the gospel. We give the impression to the world that our gospel is something wholly explicable. We give the impression to the world that, that the thing that we believe is something we can, we can tritely explain to them in a few sentences, in a booklet. We give the impression that it's something that's all very, very logical, very rational, very easy in one way to say, you know, the Lord Jesus died for you and so on and so forth, and therefore you believe, you come to him, you sign here, and it's all done. That may be true to a certain extent, but... Never forget, my dear friend, that behind it all there is a mystery. This is the thing we don't convey. It is the conveying of that sense of something gigantic, that sense of something just simply tremendous, that I believe is the converting factor. <coughs> Do you think we could have that door open? I'm getting too hot. Um, it is the converting <coughs> factor and uh, um, to, as, I, as I see it when we've lost that we can preach the gospel till we're blue in the face and we won't see much it's just that sense of something that lies behind it all Oh, sometimes I wonder what the Lord thinks when we come to his table. We come in punctually, we walk in anyway, slapdash, careless, no, no, uh, there's been no uh, preparation, there's been no examination. Why? What does the Lord himself say? Le Paul says, the Lord says to Paul, let a man examine himself. 
So that as we come to the table, there is, there is some kind of quietness. There's something, and it's not a question. I'm not talking about people who live a long way where we understand that. But I mean, let's face it, those of us who live nearest are the most impunctual. It is a slap in the face of the Lord. A gross irreverence. We can treat him and the cost of his redemption, all that he has done, so lightly. Would we be late at Buckingham Palace? Would we be late at another appointment we had with anyone that we had any respect for? No. But that's only a small thing. Do you, you really mean to say that impunctuality means much? It's not the impunctuality. It's what it reveals. It's not that you're just a few minutes late. It's, it's the whole attitude that it reveals. Something that is familiar, something that's easy. Oh, the Lord will understand. My dear friend, he was on time when he died. Not a moment late. It was a divine appointment which he kept. Oh, if only this could grip us. So the way we dress, the way we behave, our whole attitude is not something Victorian, not something that's just artificial, but it's, it, it's something which betrays a sense of being in the presence of divine mystery. I must say myself that I shudder when we're asked to swing our arms around and say all kinds of things. Ah, oh, just a, I know it's only for children, but I find it terrible. It's not that the thing itself is wrong. It's just the fact that somehow, to me, at the Lord's table, there is a time and a place for everything. And at the Lord's table, we are in the presence of the greatest agony that was ever ever born in the whole of time or eternity. Therefore, my dear friend, don't let us be surprised if when the world comes in, they detect things uh, uh, about us and our attitudes and wonder how much it really means to us. We become familiar with divine things. Well, suffer all that, but I think it's something which goes to the heart of this. What did the Lord say? He said, um, according to Luke, do this in remembrance of me. We are to sit down and remember. And I believe that in that one simple word, we have the answer to all our questions. Should I do this? Should I do that? Is it all right to dress like this? Is it to, oh, shall I get all into bondage? Simply, one thing. Am I remembering him? Does it, does it correspond to a remembering of him? Is this the way we would remember? It's as simple as that. When we break bread together, it is not only that we look back and remember what is done. Now, the Lord doesn't want a kind of memorial service. Every 
hymns sung like a kind of funeral dirge, which for some strange reason is the practice in so many free churches, uh, as well as the state church. Uh, a kind of, you sing every, every hymn just like an immemorial service. But that's not the Lord's table, for it is a time of triumph. It's a time of triumphant praise and worship. But we never go over, over at the border, as it were, into what becomes familiar and cheap. That's the point. We not only remember the Lord and call to mind all that he did for us at that time. But more than that, we, we, we look forward to a kingdom which is coming. For the Lord has said, I will no more drink of the fruit of the vine till I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So when we ever come to this table, every time, whensoever we come to the table, it is to proclaim that a kingdom is coming. We've been born into a kingdom. We know the king. The kingdom is coming. He is not, as it were, uh, eating that bread and drinking that wine. Whilst we do it, he will no more do it till we all do it afresh, not necessarily drink actual wine. But there will be one great final feast, perhaps in an altogether different dimension, on a different level. What a wonderful thing that is, when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. I will no more drink of it till... We sang that hymn, Till He Come. That's the Lord's table. Now, there's something very wonderful about those words, Till He Come. The depths of His agony, the extent of his, his, his anguish, the intensity of His suffering has saved us for something that's coming. When you see this poor old world with all its wreckage, tottering all the time on the brink of war and strife and unhappiness. Well, it's a wonderful thing to know that we've been saved to a kingdom that is coming. Well, now, that's this Last Supper. It was, we must also note, that it was during the first part of this meal that Christ precipitated Judas's betrayal. Now, I use the word precipitate because if you look at John uh, chapter um, 13 and um, verse 21 to 30, and you compare it with the verses uh, in Matthew 26, uh, verses 20 to 25, you will see that it was the Lord himself who precipitated Judas's going out. What evidently happened was that the Lord said, one of you will betray me tonight. And there was consternation all around the table. And they all began to question. And the Lord said, one of you who has dipped in this bowl, by the way, that bowl was the herbs, the herbs we talked about, that little bowl of herbs, which everyone dipped a piece of the unleavened bread in and then ate. Um, One of you who has dipped into this bowl will betray me. So um, Peter, according to John, 
Simon's account, Peter, full of curiosity, beckoned to John, who was lying on, on the Lord's um, uh, shoulder, uh, breast. He beckoned to him, ask him, in a whisper, see, ask him. So, whispering into his ear, John said, Lord, who is it? And the Lord said to him, in a whisper, the one that I give this piece of unleavened bread to, dipped in the sauce, is the one. He gave it to Judah. And Judah said, is it I? And the Lord said, you have said. And then quietly he evidently said to Judas, that that you do, do quickly. Now the other disciples didn't quite know what, what he meant. They thought he'd forgotten to buy something for the Passover. Now the Lord had precipitated Judas's going out. For Judas has already betrayed Christ. But the final arrangements hadn't been made. You see, do you remember the Sanhedrin in a clandestine way had met and said, not during the Passover. Not during the Passover. <laughs> the Lord had said, during the Passover. Now, Judas had gone out, sold his Lord, and they'd evidently said to him, now look, not during the feast. Watch for a, a, a convenient opportunity. When the convenient opportunity comes, um, arrange with us after the festival. That's another uh, eight days. It is quite clear that Judas panicked. He thought he'd been found out when the Lord said, that that thou doest do quickly. So out he went as fast as he could and upset the Sanhedrin's whole, all their plans. Uh, the result was that within a few hours they'd got together a rabble and uh, they came down to Gethsemane and arrested the Lord as he left the garden of Gethsemane. In other words, what we're trying to say is this, that we see the Lord's words in verse 2 fulfilled. Here is the king ruling in the midst <coughs> of his enemies. They said, not during the feast. Christ said he will be betrayed and crucified during the feast. It was during the feast. That's how it all happened. Well, we have many questions and many problems about Judas. That's another mystery, a satanic mystery. We have many problems there, but uh, we leave them. The other thing I want you to note about the Last Supper is in verse 30 of uh, chapter 26, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now the New English Bible says, and when they had sung the Passover hymn, they went out. Now, I wonder, here is a little study for you yourself to do if you really want to uh, follow up this. Do you know what this Passover hymn was? It is sung to this day, always, at every Passover meal, uh, every Jewish Passover uh, meal each year. It is what we call the Hallel. The Hallel, of course, is the first two syllables of Hallelujah. And so it's called the Hallel, the praise ye, because these particular psalms all begin with praise ye, and they end with praise ye. And they are the psalms, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Now, Psalm 113 and 114 was sung during the earlier part of the Passover meal. They said they stop together around the table, stop eating, and they sing it. 
And if you look at those uh, psalms, you will see that immediately they have a lot of meaning. Um, Hundred and thirteen. Praise ye the Lord. And then it goes on from the rising of the sun and the going down the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. He goes on, he that raises up he raises up the poor out of the dust, lifteth up the needy from the dunghill that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. It's wonderful to read these words in the light of the Lord's passion. It's it's just wonderful to realise that these very words were sung by him in the light of his cross. Just at the point he was going to take that bread of affliction and say, take ye, this is my body which is given for you. When he was going to take that cup of wine and say, this cup of blessing which we bless, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. These were the um, psalms that he sang, 113 and 114. And then, 115, 116, 117, which is a very short one, and 118 are the psalms that he sang when they went out. They sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. What was it that they sang? Here we know what they sang. They sang these psalms, Psalm 115, right through to 118. Now, if you go home and read those in the light of what the Lord was going to do, they're wonderful. And absolutely wonderful, especially Psalm 116. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believe for I will speak. I was greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And so what meaning they have. But Psalm 118, of course, was Luther's favourite psalm. And when you read through that psalm, to me it simply thrills me. And I think that it was the last thing of scripture that the Lord ever recited or sang before he went to the cross. And look at it. His loving kindness endureth forever. Out of my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do unto me. The Lord is on my side among them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in men. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in, pre in, in princes. All nations compassed me about, in the name of the Lord I will cut them off. They compassed me about, yea, they compassed me about, in the name of the Lord I will cut them off. They compassed me about like bees, they are quenched as the fire of thorns, in the name of the Lord I will cut them off. Thou didst thrust sore at me that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous, the right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. Now listen, I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord hath chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over unto death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will enter into them. I will give thanks unto the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter into it. I will give thanks unto the Lord, for thou hast answered me, and art become my salvation. Now the messianic works, verses which we all know. 
the stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad. Think of the Lord going out to face Calvary. This is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And then he goes on, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And then he goes on, The Lord is God and he hath given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. Tremendous psalm. It always amazes me that Jews to this very day sing those words uh, at the end of every Passover meal, year in, year out. And it has not dawned upon them that the Messiah has come. Well, now, those are the words that the Lord sang. Well, that's the Last Supper. Now, we just have a few moments and we'll deal with the first part of the next <coughs> section, the Passion of God's King. This uh, takes us from uh, verse 31 of chapter 26 right through to the 66th verse of chapter 26. Now, just one little word as we look at this section. For in a sense, it is the climax of the whole gospel. I think it is, it must be, with awe and, and wonder that we now watch the king accomplish the work for which he came into this world. Uh, we can't follow him. <coughs> We can't follow him. We can only stand, as it were, on the brink and watch. And it is very interesting that all the Gospels, that's all they try to do. They don't try to tell us so much. They just, as it were, stand with an awe and a wonder on the brink of it all. And they just tell us what they see, almost as it were, from afar off. We can't go with him here. But we just have to stay back and watch. As I've already said a number of times in this last few weeks, we face a divine mystery. Let me add only this, that beyond the words used, beyond the facts described, beyond the revelation given, there are unfathomable depths. I will not grow weary in these studies of stressing and re-stressing it. There are unfathomable depths. Now the first thing is, and we shall only be able to deal with it, Christ's prediction of the falling away of the eleven. Now that's these first few verses um, in this section from verse 31 to 35. Almost immediately after the end of their last meal together and whilst they were walking somewhere on the Mount of Olives. Now it would have taken them, I should think, about three quarters of an hour to walk from the upper room in the old city um, across the Kidron Valley and up onto the area of the Mount of Olives. It was east of Jerusalem. 
Um, they had gone on that war. Now, for those of you who really want to study your Bible, and I wish with all my heart that you'd use these times to do that, you're, what you've got in John 14, 15, 16, and 17 all took place on that walk. So you've got the, it all filled in there. When he talked about the vine, they were probably passing vines as they went down. He said, I am the true vine. Lots of other things spring to life, certainly. Where did he stop and pray the high priestly prayer? It wasn't in the Garden of Gethsemane. We shall see that next week. But somewhere, either along that journey, he stopped for a while and he prayed. They'd never heard a prayer like it. At that time, they were all awake. Later they, they fell asleep. But they were awake then and recorded it for us, exactly what was prayed in that tremendous prayer. Now, somewhere whilst walking around on the Mount of Olives with the view of Jerusalem over to the south, um, the Lord predicted that every one of them would fall away that night. Every one of them. Verse 31. Okay. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, it, it is at this point that we begin to see the king passing into the darkness alone. Up to now, the rest have been with him. They haven't understood him. Mary has been the only one who's penetrated uh, into the heart of things and comforted him. But they've been with him. He's had some kind of human uh, company. From this point, the king starts to pass into the darkness alone, utterly alone. It begins with this prediction that they will all fall away, and that they will all fall away that night. Now, note the word in your authorised version, your revised version, you shall all be offended in me. You shall all be offended in me. In the revised standard version, it puts it, you shall all fall away because of me. I think the word offended in me, I think for some of us who've been Christians for a while, we get to understand the meaning, the atmosphere in that word, offended in me. Blessed is the man that is not offended in me, said the Lord once. Um, but the word literally means to put a snare in our way, to put a stumbling block in our way. In fact, we get our English word scandal or scandalize from it. And the Lord was really, what the Lord was really meaning was this. The price of faithfulness to me will prove too dear for you tonight. Now, you know, my dear friend, that's exactly what happens every time we fall away, isn't it? The price of faithfulness to him proves too dear. Sin seems easier, cheaper. The price of being uncompromising is just too that's exactly what he meant. He said, you will be offended. There'll be a, I shall become a stumbling block in your way tonight. I! Now, you know there is a sense in which this lies behind every falling away. 
it's not sin it's not in the devil in the end it's the price of faithfulness to him for the Lord can keep us make no mistake about it the Lord can keep us he can keep you kept by the power of God unto a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time again in Jude kept for Jesus oh wonderful he can keep but you see it's there's a sense in which we can be offended in him there's a he becomes a stumbling block the price of faithfulness to him proves too much too dear that's what happened that night now note Peter (laughs) Peter resolutely affirms that although everyone else might fall away he would be alone in going right through well now you know we all sort of again tend to treat so often Peter with a kind of supercilious smile you know well poor Peter poor old Peter but in actual fact Peter represents us all how often we've said quite spontaneous I'll go through not me when we see someone else wobbling we don't immediately oh me no we say I'll go through poor old so and so well always did think it you know I'll go through not me comes out in our relationships with one another when we say oh I'll never do that you can trust me never dare dream of doing that stab you in the back never let you down never talk behind your back never not me the rest not well not me and the Lord answers Peter by saying before the cock you will deny me three times now what he really meant was the third Roman watch that was the first three hours of the day between 12 and 3 a.m. before 3 a.m. this night you will deny me think of the shock to poor old Peter I'll go right through all these others might fall but I won't Lord I'm going right through with you Peter by 3 o'clock this morning you will have denied me three times now Peter's immediate reaction to that is to be only more resolute than ever and he declares that he will never deny Christ even if it means death with him now your authorized version says though I die I will not deny but it is much more accurately put in the revised version, the American Standard Version and the revised Standard Version, all the modern versions, when it says, even though I die with you, I will not deny you. So spoke Peter. Now, uh, Peter has often done a grave injustice by us Christians when we represent him as someone who um, makes empty-headed and unmeaning declarations oh I've heard it again and again you know, Peter's an impetuous man you know just gallows, you know, type of person who just makes empty-headed declarations says things he doesn't really, mean, doesn't really mean I do not believe it 
I do not believe the whole beauty of Peter's character was simply that he believed at the time absolutely in what he said he was utterly genuine and utterly sincere when he said I will die with you he meant it with all his heart he wasn't just saying something easily he meant it he, it was a horror to him to think that he would deny his Lord why out with the suggestion could the Lord say such a thing about me I'm not like that I'm not that kind of person <laughs> oh Judas well, of course. But I mean me, I mean, I, I'm not just not that type of person. See? I mean, that is the whole reaction. It, it, we do him a grave injustice and fail to understand the point when we uh, suggest that he just made empty-headed and unmeaning uh, declarations all the time. No, he was utterly sincere. The fact is, like the majority of us, if not all of us, he did not know himself. That's the point. He did not know himself. Then again, I think we often overlook a very simple little thing I have. I must say this, until I've just been looking at it recently, in the last week or two, we often overlook the fact that Peter, in his spontaneous declarations, only spoke for the rest. He, being a little more impetuous, and impulsive and much more uninhibited well, it's a blessed thing sometimes to be uninhibited it's also a blessed thing sometimes to be inhibited it saves you an awful lot of trouble one way in his uninhibited way he simply said what the rest were thinking he said it again and again he just was the spokesman he was the natural spokesman of the rest you find it again and again through the New Testament through the Gospel have you noticed in verse 35 uh, just the little sentence and so said all the disciples? I must say I've overlooked that. All the times I've read uh, the gospel I've overlooked that. There. And so said all the disciples. Uh, the New English Bible says they all protested. <laughs> protested. Beautiful word. They all said we'll die for you. Oh, murmur, 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 murmur right through the whole arch, you know, sort of thing. Oh dear, how can he say such a thing? Talking about betraying first at the Last Supper, we've had a really bad evening this evening. Now, we're all going to, they're all going to sort of run away and desert him and, and never. Peter's right. Eh? They all hid behind me. They were more inhibited. But dear old Peter had said it and so they all, blah, 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 blah. yes, and so said they all. So forget, for, for whenever uh, we tend to make poor old Peter, as it were, one on his own, just remember uh, that in his type of character, he only expressed what the rest were really uh, saying. None of them believed they would fall away. Let's face it, none of them believed they would fall away. Just in the same way that I think the majority of, the, of us, if we thought that, that communism would come, or uh, uh, militant atheism, or, or, or Antichrist, we would say, we won't fall away. We'll stick it. We'll go through. None of them believed they would fall away, even under the greatest pressure. Indeed, they believed they were <coughs> capable of dying with Christ, proving their faithfulness in dying with him rather than denying him. 1 Corinthians 10 
and verse 13 is the best comment on this let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall that's the best comment and I think we all need to take very solemn note of it it's a good thing when a person is afraid that they might deny their Lord it's a good thing when a person knows uh, that they walk on a sharp edge for then they know their sufficiency is of God and it's pride that goeth before a fall perhaps the most remarkable thing with this we end about this passage is the Lord's use of Zechariah 13 and verse 7 he quotes it when he says um, in um, uh, verse 31 for it is written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered now this is a most striking use of Zechariah 13 verse 7 for if when you get the notes or even tonight you look up Zechariah 13 verse 7 you will find that although it is implied that God is the one who does the striking the way it is put is as a command smite the, the shepherd and scatter the flock the sheep of the flock but the Lord changed it now the Septuagint version says exactly the same strike the shepherd and scatter the sheep of his flock the Lord deliberately changed it and said I it is written I will strike the it was implied but for emphasis he draws out and he underlines and emphasizes the real meaning of that prophecy who is going to do all this? God is going to do it now I have said we face a divine mystery I can only say that in those words there is something dreadful and wholly inexplicable but in those five words I will strike the shepherd you have the whole key to Calvary I will You have also the key to, the un to an understanding of what we shall deal with next week. Why, for the only time in his being, the Lord flinched from doing the will of God. Why? Not the pain. Not death. But these dread words. I, God, will strike the shepherd. How utterly mysterious and awesome they are. And yet how majestic. How majestic. And the king just simply, he knows what's happening in one sense. He knows what lies behind it. God himself is behind the son's suffering. The father is behind the sun's suffering. I 
We shall leave it there, and that means that next week we can devote ourselves entirely to Gethsemane. And I myself believe that with Gethsemane we are in the mystery of the mysteries. I shall seek to, to put that over to you next week, to try and somehow explain why, because I doubt myself in a company so young as this whether any of us have ever realized the inexplicable nature of Gethsemane especially when you bring together what is said this has been as it were just a, a preparation for that the, the king is already passing into the darkness alone next week we shall discover that he is alone even when they're with him. They're no longer with him. They can't follow him. They can't understand him. They can't even comfort him anymore. He's passed beyond their reach. May God help us when we come to the table and when we, when we really, as it were, in all our dealings with the Lord, may he help us to understand just what love there is behind our salvation. Shall we pray? Now, dear Lord, we do commit ourselves to Thee. We do pray that Thou wouldst make real Thy word to every one of us. And that, O oh, dear Lord, Thou wilt give a fresh, deeper, clearer appreciation and understanding of Thy table to every single one of us. And we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.